just want to thank you for um, receiving us so, so warmly. It's, it's really an honor to be here and to, to preach uh, for Kim and I to be able to renew our friendship with Tab and Sung. And, uh, and then last night to be with the elders and wives and, and, and some of the affiliation team. Did I get that name right? The affiliation team. Um, and just, just have a sense of, of the heart and the burden of this church. And to be invited into that is, is a real privilege for us. So, so thank you. Um, TAP has asked me to talk a little bit more about Sojourn Network. And um, you know, I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you hear that word network. But Sojourn Network is, is filled with pastors. They are um, broken pastors. They are see- pastors seeking to be humble. They are uh, earthy pastors. They are guys who love the local church but realize that their local church will be stronger and their leadership will be stronger if they have a place to go for counsel and for training, and when they hit a crisis, and for mission thinking, expansion thinking, a, a place where they can sit with, with men and women who are unimpressed with the size of their intellect, or of the size of their local churches, or the extent of their gifts, and they can ask hard questions, and be asked hard questions, and receive honest answers. So there's this whole side of what we do that is serving and caring and and loving pastors and helping pastors plant churches. But it's also about churches, that Sojourn Network is filled with, with churches who love the idea of planting churches and multiplying churches through churches, and they want to partner together to see that happen. And by the grace of God, it, it is happening. Right now, we have the privilege of supporting, I think it's maybe 16 or 17 different church planters. Uh, we're, we're a small group of, small network. We've got about 56, 57 churches around the United States. So, you know, we're not a big group, and we don't regard ourselves as exceptionally talented but we are trying to be faithful and we are really grateful that we get to do that while we cultivate friendships with churches like Grace Church of East County. So thanks for listening and thanks for receiving us so warmly this morning. And now we turn our attention to something that is far more significant than any network and that is the Word of God. So you can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. And I'd like to read to you from Romans 4, verses 18 through 21. Title of this morning's message is Faith for Barren Times. Faith for Barren Times. And, And we can pick it up in verse 18 of Romans 4. In hope, he, by the way, that's talking about Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as 
he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we read this description of Abraham's life. We, we hear of his faith, and one of the first places my mind goes is, oh God, I want to be like that. I want to experience a confidence in your promises that are embodied in this man. And yet we realize because we have your word before us, because we are unpacking it, seeking to understand it, that your spirit is going to be active right now. That you're going to be at work, not only stirring faith, but, but, but planting something inside of us of a greater confidence in you. And so we, we want to say that we need that. And we desire that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He had already lived 75 years. That's three quarters of a century. His name, Abram, literally meant father of many. A kind of stabbing irony for a man with no kids. But he was wealthy, healthy, happy, and surrounded by extended family when God one day interrupts his rather settled existence with a, with a command that almost is incomprehensible. God says to him, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you and I will make a great nation of you. Imagine that, a, a great nation springing from an old man with no kids. How does that work? But Scripture says Abram obeyed. He uprooted his family, which at that point included nephews and servants and livestock and possessions. And he went forth, as Hebrew chapter 11 records, not knowing where he was going. And as he journeyed, he waited. Every week, every month, he waited. Year after year, he waited. He waited for the promise of God to be fulfilled. Several years later, God kind of drops by in a vision because Abram is in, in, in an anguished state. He's very discouraged. He's still childless. There's no heir. There's no seeming fulfillment to the promise that God has given him. 
I just imagine him sitting around thinking, great nation. Great, where's this great nation business coming from? All I have is this, this nephew, and I don't even like him very much. I don't even have any, a lot of pets that I enjoy. Where's the great nation going to come from? And Scripture says that, that God took him outside and bid him to look up and to begin to number the stars. And then God spoke again to him and said, so shall your offspring be. And then the Bible says, and Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that's quite a story. I mean, really, that is an extraordinary story. And you almost expect that that story is going to wrap up right there. That's a beautiful story. It has closure. It has excitement. There's climax. There's engagement with God. You think that's where it's all going to end with Abram encountering God. But actually, all of that was before what I like to think about as the long wait of Abraham's life. First couple of years weren't so bad. I mean, it, you know, it's just a couple of years. But after seven or eight years, you know, the memories, they, they grow dull. He was just like us. He's probably thinking at times, did that really happen? Did that whole thing eight, nine years ago really happen? Did God really speak to me? Did he really come? Did, you know, did, did it happen in the way that I imagined it, that it seems like all, it's just a dream? But was that real? Because there's nothing around him that's verifying that it was real. There's nothing about his life that's changing or validating the fact that it's real. I mean, Sarai, his wife, is still barren. Abram is just aging. At year 10, mistakes were made. Because Sarai had to know, okay, I want to know, is it me or is it him? Is it me or him? So she pushes Hagar on him as his wife. Abram capitulates. Ishmael is conceived. Arab history begins. But Ishmael is not the promised one. Another 14 years pass. God returns to Abram. God returns and reaffirms his promise. In fact, God returns reaffirms his promise and changes his name from Abram, father of many, to Abraham, father of a multitude. So now Abraham is 99 years old. Sarai's name has now been changed to Sarah, but she's already been through menopause, and she has one child, but it's not the child of her own body. It's not the child of the promised one that they have been promised. The question is, that screams out from Scripture, how long will they wait? One year later, 25 years after the promise, Isaac was born. Now, that's the story behind Romans chapter 4. And if we were to look at the entirety of Romans, we would see that in the early chapters, Paul is building this case for a righteousness that comes through faith and faith alone. 
So here in chapter 4, what he's doing is, is Paul is t- introducing the strongest and most stunning piece of evidence for the position that he's putting forward. He's taking Abraham, father, Abraham, the beginning of the Jewish lineage, and he offers him as exhibit A of saving faith. But here's the thing I want, I want to track with you. While chapter 4 of the book of Romans is about the faith that saves, it is about the faith that justifies, we are instructed in chapter 4 about the nature of faith itself. Because the faith that justifies also portrays a faith that pleases God. The faith that justifies also portrays a faith that perseveres through trial. And so, I think it becomes very important for us to understand exactly what's going on in Abraham's faith and why it's so important that God wanted to insert it and install it in chapter 4 for us to be able to, to, to read and, and be instructed by it. So I want to dissect this persevering faith on Abraham's, out of Abraham's life into three different parts. Here's part number one believing the promise believing the promise verse 18 in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told so shall your offspring be so Abraham according to this passage had been told something by God he had been told you will become a father you will have a son And so what we begin to learn in verse 18 is that faith responds to the Word of God by investing trust in God's words and standing on God's words as a promise that has a guaranteed future reality. It's just not here yet. But it's guaranteed to happen in the future. It's just not something that's arrived today. Now, I realize as soon as we start studying the, the men and women of the Bible have had the, who have had these incredible supernatural experiences, we begin to think, yeah, I, I get it. I mean, if God came to me in a vision and kind of chatted with me about my future, um, I think I could believe as well. As if true faith rests upon a supernatural experience. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm wide open to supernatural experiences. I pray I have tons of them in the future. I wouldn't mind one right this second. But the problem is that when all you're living out of is having once had a supernatural experience, that the memory of those experiences fade. And I'm not talking about this from simply a psychological standpoint or a physiological standpoint. I'm talking about when we look at Scripture, when we study the Israelites who were led during the day by a pillar of fire and and a cloud of smoke at night, how quickly they forget all of these supernatural experiences. So it's true of Israel. It's true of the kings. It was true of the prophets. It's true of us as well. Kim and I were in a small group not long ago, and, and uh, it was right around our anniversary, and the small group leader 
kind of surprised us by asking us. He said to us, Dave, Kim, you guys, you have an anniversary in just a couple of days. Give us a memory from your wedding day. And our wedding day, you know, had been 30 years prior. And so I thought, okay, well, that's not a, that's not a hard one. And so I'm, I'm looking and, I, you know, I'm trying to boot up the file of the wedding day. And, and I'm getting nothing whatsoever. And I begin to think, oh, this is not good. So I do what every, every married man will do in that case is he'll lock eyes with his wife and he'll begin to like coax. You don't say anything, but you kind of coax with your eyes, you know, like give me something, give me anything. I'm, 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 I'm dying out here. Share something. But the problem is I'm looking at her eyes and she's got nothing either. And so I'm thinking, this is bizarre. I'm looking down at my hand. There's a ring on my finger. I know I was married somewhere along the way. But there's this, there's this gigantic gap, it appears, between that day and us sitting there in the small group. Because memories fade. Here's the point. Abraham didn't stand on the memory of an experience. God spoke, and he believed, and he drove a stake of confidence in the Word of God. Now, for us, the promises of God are contained and preserved in our Bible. Listen, if you're looking to grow in faith and you're not working your Bible, it's impossible. You've got to be working your Bible to grow in faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes. How does faith come? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. So you see in Scripture these verses where God... Think about prayer, where God promises to hear prayer. And yet when we pray, the heavens, the heavens sometimes feel like brass. And it creates the situation like, what, what are we going to believe in that moment? Are we going to believe the circumstances? Or are we going to, like Abraham, believe the promise? Because when we believe the circumstance and we just become circumstance-centered, then we feel this this creep of cynicism collecting within our soul. You know, that sense of, oh, I know this happens for other people, but that would never happen for me. And yet there's part of us that knows that there's something wrong with that. And so faith says that we have to, we have to expect that Scripture is going to speak to us. And we have to, have, we have to let Scripture be louder than the other voices in our life. We have to let the promises of God be louder. We have to let Romans 4 speak, for instance. I mean, this, this very passage, you know, you, are you anything like me? That there are times where you wake up in the morning and you are just feeling like unworthy or you feel like you, you may have sinned in ways that would make God think about you in a, in a, in a non-loving manner, or you wonder if God is really approve, that really approves of you, or maybe you feel, you feel shame. And those things are really real. They're, 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 they're a part of the human experience. And yet we read here, and we didn't read earlier, but, but let's just pop back into Romans 4 again to, to the verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, 
but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. In other words, when Jesus looks down, he no longer sees us in our sins and our past and and, and the things that we struggle with. But he looks down and he sees the righteousness that was counted to us. And that unleashes a, a, a beautiful blessing from him. That unleashes his yes and amen. That unleashes his I love you, my child. That's what we get from God regardless of how we feel. And yet we wouldn't know that apart from the Word of God. And so I have to go to God's Word in those mornings when I feel like I don't even want to get out of bed and be refreshed and reminded of the reality that God defines around my existence. So faith tells us that Scripture must speak louder than these voices. We have to let Psalm 127 speak. That behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed are those that have a quiver full of them. They won't be ashamed when they stand in the gate. And we have to let that speak because we don't always feel that. We're not always aware of those promises. We're not thinking about promises regarding our children, that they're a heritage from the Lord, that we're blessed if we have them, that there's something about the future that that is going to be the opposite of shame, that we're going to stand and they're going to stand. But in order for that to happen, we have to let Psalm 127 speak. See, the challenge is to be alive today is to have voices speaking to us all the time. Our fears speak. Our circumstances speak. Our suffering speaks. Our fatigue speaks. Our fears speak. And what Abraham did is he recognized that faith trust what God says about our future more than what those voices say in the present. Faith trusts what God says about our future more than what those voices say in the present. So the question I need to ask you this morning is, which voices matter most to you? And which voices are you keying off of? Because Abraham had to wrestle through the same kinds of things we had to wrestle through. You know, we're going to talk in just a minute, but it's evident that Abraham didn't begin in a place of faith because it says he grew strong in his faith. But eventually he had this settled conviction. In verse 21, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He rested in this settled conviction. Why? Because God said it. Why? Because it was in God's word and God's word alone. I brought a quote with me by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones where he once said, quote, there is always this naked element in faith. It does not ask for proofs. It does not seek them. In a sense, it does not need them because faith is content with the bare word of God. So Abraham believed the promise Point number two, Abraham embraced the circumstances. Embraced the circumstances. Listen to this from verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. And then this little commentary, since he was about 100 years old, 
or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You know, what I love about verse 19 is I, I love the fact that the description of where they are links faith to reality. In other words, there's, there's no denying the reality of how bad things really are. There's no dumping of the evidence. There's no spin control. There's no brokering the information. There's no managing of the images here. There's no avoiding the raw truth because the raw truth might reinforce something that's negative. I mean, you know as well as I do that there is a, you know, there is a body of faith teaching that circulates throughout the world that, that basically says that voicing the reality of the situation is either empowering the problem or it's emboldening the enemy. And, and it makes Christians appear like, you know, how can I say this delicately? Lunatics. I mean, it makes us appear like lunatics. Like, like I'm, not, no, I'm not sick here. I only appear to be coughing up blood. You know what I mean? It, it's, this is not the real reality that's going on here. And isn't this a refreshing passage? You know, in a world that is broken, in a world that has fallen, in a world where we have real problems, and in a world where the circumstances of our life aren't changing quickly, and, and they can be ugly at times. It, you know, there is this raw reality where Abraham is considering his circumstances. In other words, he's not running from them. He's not denying them. He's saying, okay, let me take stock here. Let's see. He, he, he's considering his own body. I consider my own body, and, well, it's as good as dead. And, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm 100 years old. So Abraham's looking in the mirror. He's looking at his body. He's saying, hey, this thing, dead. I mean, this thing is as, as good as dead. Now, because he's a guy, he's saying, it's a very hip, very cool kind of dead. You know, it's, it's a better than any other 100-year-old kind of dead. But... But it's, it's dead. And then he's looking at Sarah, who, by the way, is 90 at this point. And she's his wife, and she's gorgeous to him. But she's older, and Scripture says she's barren, so she's still a, she's still a babe to her husband, but she's a barren babe to her husband. Listen, I don't want you to miss what this section is meant to communicate. This section is meant to communicate. You look at Abraham, it's impossible. You look at Sarah, it's incomprehensible. Everywhere you look is dead. It's all dead. There is no seed, no hope, no way, no life. It's almost like the circumstances have come in like a jury and they've returned this verdict. They've said, impossible, can't happen incomprehensible, unbelievable, because there is no seed, there is a barren woman, there is a hundred-year-old man, there is no hope, there can be no life. Do you realize what this means for your situation? Whatever the Spirit of God is doing in you right now, the, the little interaction that's taking place where there are faces that are popping up before you, or there's that situation at work, or this thing going on in your marriage, and you're just thinking, there's no life here. 
and it's never going to change. Abram believed, and this is the point, Abram believed when there was no life. He believed when there was no life. Do you have any areas where you are burdened right now by an absence of life? Where the circumstances, when you're, when you're like Abraham and you are gut level honest, the circumstances reveal an utter barrenness. I mean, maybe there's somebody that you've been praying for for years. You love this person, and you are praying for them, and they are not making any movement in any direction towards God or even any forward direction in life. And when you honestly assess where they are, you've got to realize, and, and you, you come to terms with the fact there's no change, no interest, no life. Or someone you love is, is just being crushed by foolishness, there's, there's no strength, no power, no change, no life. Your financial situation, which, which you would love to think that it's better than it is, but you look at it and it's the same that it was, and it doesn't appear to be changing at all because there's no change, there's no additional income, there's no inheritance that you know of, there's no life. Or maybe you look at your child. Maybe your kids are teenagers. Maybe your kids are adult children. And, and you think they have been given so much by God, and yet they are bearing so little fruit for God. And yet, if I honestly have to assess where things are, there's no zeal, no heart, no interest, no life. All around me is barrenness. Who can relate to that? God says, Abraham. Can relate to that. And by the way, not just for a few years. You know the way trials run as they, you know, they kind of come in rhythms and they last three, four years and then you emerge out of them. 25 years. In fact, God intentionally waited with Abraham and Sarah. He intentionally waited until it was and physically too late. I mean, Think about what's, what's being said here. The problem is not just barrenness, but age. In other words, it's not just an absence, an, in, an, the, an absence of life in her. That's, what, that's what's meant when it says she's barren. Absence of life. But it's, and I want to be delicate here, but it's for Abraham, it's an utter inability to produce life. It had been a long time since Abraham was able to produce life. That's what it means when it says his, his body is as good as dead. He's 100 years old. Her condition is barren. See, it's all there intentionally. That's why this section starts with, in hope, he believed against hope because it was utterly hopeless. And yet God, yet God brought them to a place where it was evident to them and everyone else that this was way beyond man. That the best leadership that they brought to this was not going to move it forward. That the best thinking that they had was not going to change the circumstances. That all the counsel they could get was not going to move things forward in a way that was going to result in any tangible change. If there was any change whatsoever, it had to be outside of man. It had to come from some kind some super
supernatural intervention. It had to be something that came from God and God alone, which I think is very intentional in the life of Abraham. And I want to suggest it's very intentional in your situation as well. So Abraham believed the promise. And Abraham embraced the circumstances. And finally, Abraham sustained the trust. So verse 20 talks a little bit more about how this transformation took place. It says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. Oh, he grew strong. Well, how did he do that? As he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what God has promised. Now, now listen, this is what I want you to focus in on because this is so important. One of the major points that God is seeking to convey in this passage is the fact that Abraham believed God long before his circumstances changed. That Abraham met God in barrenness. It was the barren state of the situation that ended up being the defining moment and the place where Abraham met God. And i got to be honest with you, man. I read this, and this is so provo provoking to me. Because in the situations that I struggle with in my life, um, so often my faith sparks when I see some hopeful sign in the circumstance. So there's some change that takes place, even if it's ever so small, and I think, oh, there it is. God is there. You know, the Bible is open or, or, or something. There. The tone has changed. There's something about this situation where, where the circumstances appear to reflect the activity of God, and then I work from there back to God. See, that's not what Abraham was doing. That's not what Abraham was doing. This was Abraham's path through barrenness. This is what he did. He grew strong in his faith. How did he do that? Because he gave glory to God. How did he grow, grow strong? He gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so his growth in barrenness was somehow linked to his willingness to give glory to God because there was a future reality that he was going to walk in. And so he worshiped today as if that was a reality. His growth was specifically linked to seeing the promises of God and glorifying God for them. And, and the reality was the circumstances didn't change. For years they didn't change, but his faith changed. His faith revealed a sustained trust. Oh, how I wish there were, there were leaders and churches that understand that the first and most important point of care in a trial is not to dissect the circumstances but to help people with their faith and the attack of faith that's going on and to inspire their faith towards God. 
And we need, to, we need to build churches across the land and church cultures that aren't agitated over the circumstances because they're always going to be there and they're always going to be coming and changing and tempting people. And nor making excessive discussion of the circumstances the priority for how we experience community. You know, here's the thing. We learned this in parenting. Um, went, went through a season where one of my kids was, was not doing very well. And we were already experiencing, like, in our own minds, this, this condemning attack. This, this feeling, like, uh, of overwhelming failure. This feeling of, and, and when you're a pastor, all, all of that's, like, magnified times ten. And, uh, and yet, as we're going through that, we, we have a hundred voices lined up that want to talk about the circumstances. And rather than a few voices wanting to inspire faith and, and talk about faith and remind us of the promises of God, and a hundred voices seeking to discern, you know, what's going on in the circumstances and what do the circumstances reveal and what do the circumstances reveal about, about you and and, uh, and yet, not this corresponding commitment to faith towards God. And uh, I'm thinking, oh my, I just, I just want to, ex- to, to be able to reverse that. And I want to be able to, in, in the way that my kids and in the way that the people that I have the privilege of leading experience suffering, to work to inspire their faith towards God because it's the faith of Abraham that isn't circumstance-centered, it's faith-centered. Because have you ever noticed that God kind of fixes a pain and a promise in our life at the same time, and then he allows the pain to play out over a long period of time? That's really what a trial is. We, we get the pain, we need to look for the promise. And, and, but he'll allow it to play out over a long period of time. I mean, remember, Abram's name meant father of many. And that's the name he was given as a child. So as a kid, father of many was like playing on the playground. And everybody knew that was the significance of his name, that that he's going to be the father of many. And I'm sure for Abram, this was a source of pride. This was like a proclamation of a prodigious future that he was going to be experiencing. He was expected to have tons of sons and strapping boys and dainty girls and, and, and just fill up his quiver, a huge family. And, and Abraham takes a bride and they start their life together and the kids don't come. And one month passes and then six months pass and then two years pass and the kids don't come. Facebook profile reads, father of many, still no kids. Kids don't come. It was probably worse when the, when the caravans came through because Abram, as a wealthy man, actually owned all of the property and owned many of the wells in the area. And it was customary back then for travelers when they would come into a land and use the wells, the water wells, that they had to pay a well use fee And then they had to visit the owner of the well. And in visiting the owner of the well, there was this customary exchange that would take place, this this exchange of questions and answers. 
as, uh, as, the, as the man who's renting the well for the day would come in and say, what is your name? It's probably happened hundreds and hundreds of times for Abram. What is your name? I am Abram, father of many. I am Abram. Congratulations, Abram, father of many. Where are your sons and how many children have you? I have none. I have none. Thousands of times. In fact, it may be that some of you here can relate to the pain, to the disappointment, to the to the monthly demoralizing morass that one couple, a couple can fall into from wanting but not having children, from wanting everyone around, everyone around you wanting you to have kids, but you don't have kids, and your refrain is repeatedly, we have none. I mean, think about the pressure that this was on this family. I mean, eventually it would become so bad that Sarah would push him into the arms of another woman, perhaps out of her own bitterness and seeking to discover who was really at fault here with this problem. In other words, let's see who lacks life here. Because you go into her and nothing is produced. It's on you, buddy. Because this we have none stuff has got to end. Oh, yeah, they had a promise. But it took 25 years. And toward a year 24 and a half, all they had was Ishmael. In fact, God had already changed the name from Abram, father of many, to Abraham, father of a multitude. So he's being upgraded. And all he had was the son of a slave and a promise. But let's not sanitize this. You know, please don't imagine that this wasn't a defining experience for this couple, please don't imagine that it wasn't a source of shame and judgments and their identity down to the soul wasn't being attacked by this experience. But it ultimately created a work so deep, a confidence in him that he was actually willing to sacrifice the child he had ultimately waited for. So trusting in God and foreshadowing another child that would come who would become a man and would be sacrificed. So I guess the question I want to ask you this morning is, you know, how are you doing in this season between the promise and the fulfillment? How are you doing? Are you patiently waiting for God? Or have you been not conceiving an Ishmael? You know, Paul explains Ishmael in Galatians 4. Paul says, Ishmael symbolizes a child of the flesh. In other words, Ishmael is that self-sufficient choice that we make where we're saying, you know what, God, I've done the waiting thing. I've done the patient thing. We're done with that. I'm going to now take control because you don't seem to be able to manage this very well. I'm going to take control of the situation. I'm going to move the ball down the field. We need to move this along. Your timetable, for some reason, isn't working out at all. And so you are now displaced. I'm taking over. Ishmael's are conceived when impatience marries unbelief. 
Ishmael is the child. So you can't afford it, you don't really need it, but you want it, and so we slap down the credit card and we buy it, and we've been paying for it ever since. It's Ishmael with interest. Or he, he wasn't a Christian, but she seemed so close, and she made this profession, or he, he attended the youth group, and, but he never really seemed like he had committed, but I've been single now for all these years, and I just, this may be my only shot. Fast forward, and I've been living in the reality of that pain and that mistake for, for years now. It's Ishmael with irreconcilable differences. And, and if we were honest, for some of us, our, we would admit that our Ishmael's stare at us each and every day, a kind of daily reminder of us taking the reins from God and trying to push things forward, a daily reminder of the fruitlessness of us trying to do it in our own strength and in our own way. But listen, if that discourages you in any way, I want you to think about this. Think about this. This is so amazing. Abraham is offered in Scripture as the one who got faith right, and Ishmael is embedded in his story. So he is the one who's given to us in Scripture as, as the one who got faith right, and Ishmael is, is part of his story. So Abraham is not offered to us as somebody who is perfect, but he is offered to us as one who points forward to another who would come, who would be perfect. And it's because Jesus lived that perfect life and Jesus died that substitutionary death and he rose on the third day that he now has the authority and the power to redeem us, which means that our fleshly choices, in other words, those places where we didn't trust God, those places where we didn't want to do it right, those places where we didn't want to make, make wait for God, our fleshly choices no, no, no longer need to define us. They don't need to define us. It means that we don't need to spend years trying to atone for the mistakes that we've made or the Ishmaels that may have been born by our own impatience because we can look to the atonement of another. So, like Abraham, our, our Ishmaels may live on. But here's the thing. They're, they're written in to a bigger story that passes through the cross and redeems us despite our past, despite the sins that we've made, despite our mistakes and our failures, despite the Ishmaels that we may have conceived. And here's the thing, Abraham trusted this. It's how he was able to grow strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He trusted this. And my prayer for myself is the same prayer I have for you. May God help us to be more convinced that he will, give, he will help us to grow in faith as we give glory to God. May he help us to actually give glory to God, not later on today, but right here 
and right now and to do it not because our circumstances have changed but because our faith has. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to just pray now because your word unveils the reality of our unbelief and it reminds us of areas where we are not trusting you and we are not trusting your promises. And we pray that you would help us by stirring our faith in those areas and and help us leave today with a greater confidence in, in how you are at work and the promises that you have for us that can be applied to that circumstance so that we can stand in faith as we leave, knowing that even though our circumstances may not have changed, our faith has. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.